Let's now turn in our copies of God's Word to that great exalted passage in Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Isaiah chapter 40. We will read the entire chapter this morning, but I also will ask you to keep in mind the reading from John 1 that Pastor McDonald brought us just a while ago, because we certainly will see the relationship to this chapter. Let's now, with reverence and awe, pray before the Lord. Our Father, when we come to the Word of God as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, We recognize more and more and more the depth of our sin and the greatness of thy grace. That God himself would come into this world to redeem and save us is the miracle of miracles. And yet, Father, without it, we are lost. Perhaps someone here today is lost. And the reason for it, Heavenly Father, is that they have not yet seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and their need of a Redeemer And we know, Heavenly Father, until the Holy Spirit work within that heart, whoever that may be, they will never understand their need and then recognize that it required supernatural means to redeem us from our sins. Then they will see, if thou art pleased to open hearts, the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ and that he only can save lost sinners like us. We are humbled to come to this text, and as sinners to be able to read it, but now with regenerate eyes to see it as believers in Jesus and to recognize that there is far, far more here that we understand than Isaiah himself did when by divine inspiration he penned it. Praise be to thy name that we have a completed Bible and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and is coming again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Isaiah, the 40th chapter. This is the Word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on top, on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are recounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I have had the privilege to proclaim to you the incarnation of our Lord in all of these many weeks before this one, and to say to us that this is the greatest thing ever to have come to pass. 
I want us to delve into this just a little more this Sunday. And we begin by coming to this chapter which is full of the doctrine of God and His greatness. Charles Spurgeon made the statement about God, as well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. John Gill, his predecessor, said, Sooner may all the water of the ocean be put into a nutshell than the infinite being of God should be comprehended by angels or men who are finite creatures. And so we have in this passage this high, exalted, biblical, real view of who God is. Not man's view of who God is, but God's own view of himself that he would have us to understand and embrace and from which we should take comfort. He is at work in the world. This is where we find our assurance that he is with us, that he is able to save us, that he is able to keep us, the one who created all things. This is the source of our worship. This is the source of our wonder. And oh, how we need this high, exalted, biblical view of God. If there is anything that needs stressing today, it is this. And the church is suffering because we have so often in so many churches a very low view of who God is. But in verse 27, you see the people of God are saying, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And this is what they're saying. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They feel despondent. They feel overwhelmed. They feel forsaken. And God essentially is saying to them in this chapter, you need a theology lesson. You need to understand who I am. You need to understand my greatness insofar as you are able. You need to see me for who I really am. And so let us look at this high view of God and do it against the backdrop of the message of Christmas so that we may see once again the profundity, the depth, the wonder, the height, the length, the incalculable grace that has been shown to us through what Jesus Christ has done. First point is this, five truths about the Lord. Five truths about the Lord. In this passage, among other things, we see that our God is the creator. So he says in verse 12, for example, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. This is a span, by the way, my hand or yours is a span. Who has marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? God is saying to them, let's look at creation and then behind it see the creator. Who has measured the dimensions of the sea or the created order? I only can do this. I am the infinite God. I am the God who made heaven and earth and all things in it. Look at the vastness of the world and then think, the God who made this is infinite in being. Indeed, in verses 13 and 14, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, this infinite spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Oh, my people, 
the Lord is saying, raise your eyes up, lift them above the circumstances that you are now facing, the problems of this world. Lift your eyes up to see me, the one who has made the world. I want you, God is saying to us in this passage, to be stunned by my absolute sovereignty over the world that I have made. Look to me in my greatness. Am I not sovereign above all the pomp of my creatures now fallen in sin? Verses 15 through 17, behold the nations, this is good news, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And so he is saying, your enemies, whoever they may be, the Assyrian armies that will invade, they seem great to you, but to me, they're not a drop in the bucket. They're not even dust on the scales. All the nations are like an insignificant drop of water in the water skin. It is as though they were not Lebanon would not have enough wood in all of Lebanon for the animals of sacrifice commensurate with my greatness and my majesty. And so God contrasts himself with the, with the creature and with his creation because God, you see, is the eternal God. Without beginning, without end, no succession in God, no change in God, no succession of knowledge in God, no succession in His decrees. He did not have to look these things out. He is the infinite God. God is His own eternity, as Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, said. So not by grant, but by nature, by His essence, by His very being. His perfections are eternal. And this is the ground of your comfort, believer. The ground of your comfort. His covenant is eternal. This infinite God cares for you. Lamentations 5.19, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. And then he says, secondly, I am matchless and unequaled. I am the incomparable God. I am exalted above all idols. And in verses 18 through 20, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And so he tells us, using the word in verse 18, El, his name El, which speaks of his transcendence, speaks of his deity, speaks of his dominion, the God of inscrutable being and purpose, and then Isaiah, by divine inspiration, a master of irony in this passage and in others in Isaiah, when he takes the theme of idolatry and he says, how stupid we fallen sinners are to bow before rotting wood that will burn in the end and not glory in the God who really is. 
And then he says, thirdly, about himself, I am totally sovereign over men and things. And so in verse 21 and following, do you not know, do you not hear, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So the Lord directs the course of this world, not puny man. And he uses in verses 17 and 23 the Hebrew word tohu. That word is used in Genesis 1, tohu va bohu, formless and void. And he uses the term of the nations here in order to say they are empty, they are worthless. Man is not on the throne. God is on the throne. God is the one who reigns, not kings and the dictators of this world. And so I blow on men like a shirako, he says in verse 24, and the kings of the earth are just uprooted like little seedlings. And ah yes, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will last forever. So take this another step. He says of himself, fourthly, I am totally sovereign over the entire universe. In verses 25 and 26, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He says, lift up. That's the language of astral worship in the ancient world. And he says, the stars, what are the stars? They're just my little creations. They twinkle at my pleasure. They exist because I wish them to. And the death blow to any comparison between God and man is found in verse 25 when he refers to himself as the Holy One. The absolute, completely, utterly Holy One. Speaking of his absolute transcendence, speaking of his complete moral perfection, the Lord is calling us to contrast ourselves with his majesty that we may call out for mercy and find in that mercy our salvation and find in that God our hope and find our encouragement for life in him. And in scripture, looking into the heavens was a way that God confirmed his promise. You remember in Genesis 15 when God said, look to the heavens and count the stars if you can? Or in Jeremiah 32, ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. God is saying, don't doubt my promises. I put the stars in the heavens. I will never forget my sovereignly chosen people upon whom I have put my love. And then he says of himself, fifthly, I am the God who cares for his people. You think because I'm great that I will forget you? Will not care for you? Will fail to love you? Well, because I am great, I will not forsake you to whom I have pledged myself 
And so he began the chapter with comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And in verses 10 and 11, behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You think this is wonderful? You should. These are the thoughts that should fill our minds and our hearts as Christians daily. You think this is wonderful? Indeed it is. But there's a greater mystery. The greatness of God in Isaiah 40 is indeed great. But God is saying, I am the incomparable God. Let's move on in my plan, because we have a whole Bible. Let's move on in my plan for my people and see how I will care for you, how I will shepherd you, how I will cradle you in my arms. And so let's begin to link this with John 1, 1 and verse 14. The second point of our sermon, this God, this God became man. This God of Isaiah 40, this triune God planned your redemption. And this God of Isaiah 40, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate to be born of a virgin. Obey the law that we broke, shed his precious blood on Calvary's cross. And when we think of this, our mouths should be agape. We should be overwhelmed with the reality of it. For what do we find in John chapter 1? We find in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find that He is God Himself, the Word, the second person of the Trinity. We find that He is the Creator in verse 3 of John 1. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. That the Logos, the Word, is the eternal living God. Never a time when He was not. And a bold-faced statement, God was the Word in John 1.1. To be plain, the God of whom we read in Isaiah 40 is Jesus. And yes, the entire Godhead is there in Isaiah 40, of course, but the point is the second person of the Trinity became man. You know, when I was a boy, and I had a pastor who believed in the deity of Christ, and he would preach on the deity of Christ, and he would say, Jesus is God. I would say to myself, I was just a little fellow, a skeptic, sinful little skeptic. When I was a boy sitting in worship, I thought, surely you mean he was just like God, or something of God was in him. But no, the pastor said it right, and he said it straight, and it was what God's Word taught. This very God became man. And this is why, as you read the New Testament, the activities and prerogatives which the Old Testament ascribes to Jehovah are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, Creator. Savior. Prayer is offered to Jesus. He is the judge. He receives and accepts worship. 
No, wait, you're telling me that Jesus who walked this earth, who cast out demons, who, who healed the sick, and who raised the dead is God, who describes his character in Isaiah 40? Yes, that is precisely what God's Word teaches. And so if we think that the revelation of God's character in Isaiah 40 is a high mystery, and it is, just read verse 14 of John 1. And the Word, that's the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the relationship with Exodus 33. Who can see my glory and live? We can see His glory and live when God reveals Himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is precisely the point of John 1.14. This God of glory is also the God of grace. And He has revealed Himself. And we see, we have beheld His glory. And by faith continue to behold His glory in the face, shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, my friends, we would shrink before a naked sight of God in His glory and who could live. But we are drawn and we are invited and we are called. And we love to come to this great, majestic, transcendent God who has revealed Himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. This is why as you read the New Testament, we find this marvelous mystery revealed to us that is, yes, incomprehensible, but to which we are called to believe by faith. So why? Thirdly, let me ask, why? Why would this God do this thing? Why? And the answer is, because you and I lost sinners could be saved in no other way. The answer is, because Christianity is not man's groping after God. It's not the teaching that if you follow certain morals, you're going to work your way into heaven. It is God coming to us. It is God coming down. It is God saving us. You cannot speculate your way to God. You cannot philosophize your way to God. You cannot look within yourself and find salvation. You cannot moralize your way to God. Only God can save you. And without this, there is no hope for anyone. So listen, before there was a sinner, there was a Savior. Before the fall of Adam and the plunging of humanity into sin, there was a plan of the infinite God to redeem His people from that sin. So why the incarnation? Because human nature needed to make amends, but neither human nature nor anyone who was not God could do so. God's broken law must be kept by a man. Because man broke that law. The penalty for our sins must be paid by a man. Because man owed the penalty. But man could not do it. Only God could do it. Only he had the strength. Only he had the infinite being to give to that shed blood infinite value to remove our awful iniquity and guilt before him. 
John Owen the Puritan put it this way, for if the divine and human nature of Christ did not constitute one person, all that he did was only as a man, which would have been altogether insufficient for the salvation of the church, nor had God redeemed it with his own blood. So my, we sing, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with his righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is why Christmas, this is what it's all about. Isaiah 40, Jehovah shepherding his sheep by sending the good shepherd to give his life for the sheep. The cradle leads to the cross, and the cross leads to the empty tomb. Benjamin Warfield said so beautifully, the glory of the incarnation. And remember, children, incarnation means coming in flesh. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is, and at the same time, all that man is. One on whose almighty arm we can rest, and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. So I ask you one more time, why, why, why would God do this? Why would the Father send His Son? And really... We've come as far as we can go. God's glory. We had to have a mediator. Our sin could not be pardoned in any other way. Why would He love me? You know, we sing, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. So we should hear these things, and our hearts should just cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His ways past finding out. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Wherever have you seen love like this? There's nothing that so delights our Lord Jesus than saving sinners from our sins. You do not have to persuade Him to show mercy. Love is the great and grand attraction to Christ. To think that He is not willing to save you means that you've never come. The incarnate Lord declined legions of angels when He hung upon a cross. If that is not love, what is? The more my heart enters into the heart of my Savior, the more my heart breaks for every sinner that refuses the love that we read in Scripture. But I am encouraged to know that the God of Isaiah 40 can do what the preacher cannot. He can actually open hearts. He can grant saving faith. Do you know these lines? I yielded by mighty love subdued. Who can resist its charms? 
and throw myself by wrath pursued into my Savior's arms. So we have this high view of God. Indeed, it would, it would show us in its light our guilt. We broke God's law, this God's law. Yes, yes, we did. And He's done something about it. You could not have done. He sent His Son. And we throw ourselves by wrath pursued into our Savior's arms and there we're safe. So let's conclude by thinking for a moment about adoration and faith. You know, wonder should be a large part of the Christian life. Only God could contrive this. No one could bring God and man together but one who is God and man in perfect union. The second person of the Trinity must be united to human nature before sinful man could be restored to friendship with God. Do you see how great a thing it is that God saves a sinner? I wish I could make it more plain. Do you see how great a thing it is that the transcendent God would take on human flesh to redeem us from our sins. That the Son would be our mediator, our go-between. That He would be our propitiatory sacrifice. That means the one who bore our wrath in our place. so much more to say. Sin, to conclude, was the reason for the incarnation. Had man not sinned, there would be no incarnation. And the purpose of the incarnation was to redeem sinners like us from our hell-deserving guilt sin, and iniquity. Now this is the amazement of Christmas. The blinding light of God's glory. You can see it in the face of Jesus Christ. And he tells us in this very passage that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather... This is God speaking He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The one who measured the waters that we could not measure, who who knows infinitely all things, says, I'm going to come. And Jesus came. And not only was he the shepherd, he was the lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And as our Lamb, He shepherded us on the cross and shepherds His people still. And He says, God is for you and not against you. And I've proven it. I have demonstrated His love in the sacrifice of myself on the cross. That's the amazement of Christmas. God came down, God came down, God came down. And why? to redeem us from all that God hated and abhorred. To me, that's the grandeur of it all. I was his enemy. I was a rebel. 
And he came to redeem me from all of that sin and all of that rebellion and all that was contrary to the greatness of his divine being. So my friend, if you have not yet known the depth of sin, its bitterness and its misery, the incarnation may not mean much to you. But poor people who have come to know the depth of our sin and our rebellion, for those of us who do know that, the incarnation is the miracle of miracles. It means everything. And he means everything to me. Does he to you? That's what we've been doing this Christmas in our services of worship in the hymns that we sing. He means everything. This God beyond all praising who would enter into this world to save and redeem us from our sins. And he is held out this morning by the gospel preacher proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.